I live in a house with four women who love each other deeply and aren't afraid to express that in a whole manner of ways. Now I have to say this has taken a little bit of adjustment for me. I've just one brother and while we lived at home together our relationship was fairly simple. We competed with each other, we ignored each other and we occasionally grunted at each other. Life in our family now is very different. How can I put this? It's a lot more verbal and a whole lot more intense and that makes life for all of us very interesting. I just imagine there is a difference of opinion over who that top actually belongs to or why the burden of household chores is so unequal or I could go on and on but I won't. The entire discussion can be pretty passionate as deep-rooted sin and character issues are perceptively if not always gently exposed amongst siblings and the necessary judicial or diplomatic solution provided by their wise and loving parents. If you walked into or even past at some points our house while all that's going on you would get a particular impression of life in the Miller family. However if you walk past half an hour later you'd probably hear laughing, you could hear singing and you may well hear expressions of undying sisterly love. How can this be? Well when people really love each other everything tends to get ramped up. And that's exactly what it's like when Paul writes to the church at Corinth. We've just worked through 2 Corinthians 1 to 6, which are just about the most raw, full on, up close and personal, deeply intense chapters of the whole New Testament. Paul has been fighting desperately to win the hearts and minds of the people in the church family in Corinth, and it's not at all clear they're going to listen. The future of the church he'd planted seems to be up in the air. And then suddenly after all the intensity we hit chapter 7 and everything is sweetness and light. Now the Corinthians certainly drove Paul nuts at times. But he loves them deeply. And that just oozes out in chapter 7. You see Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is the real deal. It's authentic, it's intense, it's honest, it's loving. And that's the way it should be in the family of the Lord Jesus, within his church. And that's why today we're going to look at Paul's four-step guide to real relationships in church. 2 Corinthians 7 is one of those parts of the New Testament where it's not so much the Corinthians who fill the viewfinder as the Apostle Paul himself. By the way in which he deals with and responds to and appeals to and encourages the Corinthians, Paul doesn't actually tell us a whole lot about them, but in the kindness of God, he shows us how he operates and he manages to provide us with a marvellous template for healthy, loving relationships in church. His relationship with the church at Corinth was painful at times. It wasn't perfect, but it was the real deal and embodies how Jesus wants us to relate to each other and how Jesus enables us to relate to each other in his church. So this morning, if you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, here's a great chance to see how life is supposed to work among people who say they belong to Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what our Lord has already equipped us to be. So at the end, we'd better get on with living like this. So here we go. Four steps to authentic relationships in church, to being the real deal as followers of Jesus. The first one's in, in verse 2 of chapter 7. It's pursue integrity. 
After all the heaviness of the first six chapters of his letter, Paul steps back and says, make room in your hearts for us. He says, don't, don't push me away because I've said tough things. He said, you know that, that we, that's Paul and his friends, have wronged no one, have corrupted no one, have exploited no one. Paul has been completely straight up with them. He's acted with complete integrity. He hasn't been too harsh. That's the wronged bit. He hasn't led them astray by teaching them wrong ideas. And he hasn't been a greedy user. Paul's already spoken several times in this letter about the importance of a clear conscience. Paul knows if he's going to be able to sleep at night, if he's going to avoid beating himself up endlessly for messing up the church in Corinth, if he is to find joy as one of God's people, a key step is to make sure that he's been acting with integrity. Not that he's perfect, because none of us, not, not Paul, not any of us can ever pull that off. But Paul wants to make sure there are no glaring contradictions in the way in which he speaks and writes and leads and serves and teaches. No gaping holes between what he says and what he hasn't done. So it seems he regularly examines himself to check on his tone and his motives and the content of his teaching. He pursues integrity. Paul's committed to being the real deal. So here's a simple, simple template for us this week and this month and actually for the rest of our lives. And especially uh, for you guys at Salt Church today. Ask yourself first, am I being too hard on other people? There are times in church when we will be. You see, it's hard when we care about Jesus and the gospel in church. It's hard not to get cranky when things aren't going well or when people say they'll do something and don't do it or say they'll show up and don't show up or let us down or say things they shouldn't. It's easy to get cranky at people for being inconsistent, even though deep down we know we're inconsistent too. It's very easy to start thinking that these people are the real problem to start to resent them, to write them off, to hear that edge in our own voice when someone's name come up, comes up and we react kind of viscerally, kind of instinctively. We need to be able to deal with that. We need to be able to say we haven't wronged anyone by being too hard on them. So is there someone in church who just pushes your buttons? because of something they've said or done in the past, because of the way they are? Are you harboring something in your heart against them that comes out where you will cut them no slack because of the way they've been in the past? When we see Paul in action, it actually reminds us that the Lord Jesus has treated all of us with more grace than we can ever even begin to repay. And we need to pursue an integrity which treats others in the way in which we've been treated. We also need to be able to hold our heads up and say, I haven't misled anyone. That's because the truth matters. It really matters. And that means that we need to be prepared to work really hard for our whole lives to ensure that what we are saying doesn't veer off course ourselves and also doesn't cause other people to veer off. Now, of course, that applies particularly to those of us who teach, to, to guys like Maka and me and gospel group leaders, growth group leaders and youth leaders and kids leaders. But actually, because we all have the job of speaking the gospel into each other's lives, it applies to all of us. 
So ask yourself, am I doing everything in my power to speak the gospel into the lives of everyone else in church every time I get the opportunity? And I'm making sure that what I'm saying to other people is a true reflection of what Jesus has said to us in the gospel. See, this is why it's so important to be people who keep learning, who keep growing, who keep being taught the Bible, who keep asking God to, to, to work his word into our hearts and minds, to change us and reshape us, to bring us more into line with the Lord Jesus so that what we say matches up with what he says as he pulls our thinking and speaking back into shape. See, we've got to make sure we don't mislead others. And then Paul adds, we weren't greedy. The Bible makes a really big deal of greed. I think that's because as soon as we start thinking, I want more, we've stopped thinking about other people. We can't love other people while we're saying, I want more. Now, Paul is very sensitive to the accusation that he was all about the money because he knew that greed eats integrity for breakfast. So let's be really careful with this, all of us. Let's not take a job because it's well paid or turn one down because it isn't. Let's not allow ourselves to whinge about what we get or what we don't get. Let's just guard against wanting more. Of course, we have a responsibility to look after our families and we need to eat. And I'm not saying that there isn't hard thinking to be done and hard conversation to be had about financial realities, but let's do everything that we can to keep money and stuff in its place as we fight against greed. Because if we're not careful, it will gradually start to own us and drive us and spit us out. And remember, we live in a world where every time we flip open our, our computer or switch on our phone, drive down the street, we're confronted by enticements to say, I need or want more. And Paul says, no, that will kill your integrity. Now, it's important to realize that underneath Paul's passionate determination to pursue integrity is actually the Lord Jesus himself. Because Paul knows that ultimately it's Jesus Christ, the one who had met Paul, loved him, turned his life around. Jesus Christ is the real deal. He is the one who was integrity in the flesh. He's the one who never overstepped, was never mean, never misspoke, never deceived anyone, never said, I want more. See, it's Jesus Christ who's the real deal. And he creates us and calls us and changes us to be people who follow in his steps as we pursue his integrity. The New Testament says Jesus has already done everything that we need to pursue life and godliness for us. So that's what we need to do in his strength. So that's step one, pursue integrity. Step two follows on naturally from that. It's invest in people. Paul had gone to great lengths to make sure he acted with integrity because he was so invested in the church family at Corinth. Just feel the depth of the emotional engagement in his words. Verse 3, I don't say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. 
I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. Now remember, this is the church in the New Testament which seemed to give Paul the most intense, longest lasting headaches. Yet look at how he speaks about them. He loves these people deeply. He has poured himself out for their well-being. And it's not just them. Look at how he speaks about Titus in verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, we'd no rest. We, we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Normally, Macedonia was one of Paul's favourite holiday destinations. Uh, but not this time. He was stressed about the Corinthians, and he was stressed about Titus, who hadn't shown up. And remember, in the first century, if someone didn't show up to meet you, you, you can't flick them an SMS or, or an email. Uh, what do you do? You have to just hang around and see if they show up worrying, which is what Paul did. But listen to the sense of relief in verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. See, it's a win-win situation for Paul. Titus shows up and that thrilled him. And then Titus told him the news that the Corinthians, rather than hating him or having rejected him, still care deeply about him. And that just makes Paul's heart sing. Because <laughs> he's so invested in the Corinthians and in Titus. That's why on top of all that, Paul took real joy in Titus' delight in the Corinthians in verse 13. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Do you see how invested Paul is in Titus and the Corinthians? And I love the little footnote to this chapter. Paul, it seems to have been talking Titus up to the Corinthians. Uh, which, which came off. In a fallen world, it's always a risky thing to talk up other people. I remember boasting once about how friendly our church in Dublin was, which was fine until another pastor came to visit and not a single person spoke to him or his wife, which he was quick to tell me in an email he sent me on Monday morning. But Titus came through this with flying colours. Look at verse 14. I had boasted to him about you and you haven't embarrassed me. But it turns out Paul hadn't just boasted about Titus to the Corinthians, but he boasted about the church of Corinth to Titus. And it all came off, much to Paul's relief. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers you were all obedient, receiving them with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. <laughs> now remember, that's the Corinthians Paul's talking about. But at the end of the day, he says, you know what, I, I can't actually count on you. Now, I hope you can see that Paul's joy in, in these verses is directly related to his investment in people. Now, investing in people is opening ourselves up to a lifetime of concern, to sleepless nights and painful conversations and anxious waits. But it's also the key to knowing the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ together. And it's the second step to being the real deal as the people of Christ. So what does it actually mean to invest in each other as the people of God? Well, let me say two really obvious things. The first is that investing in people means, means loving each other. I know that's stating the obvious, but it's where we need to start. 
See, life together, serving each other, ministry isn't, that isn't born of love for people will be miserable for us and equally miserable for the people we're practicing on. There will be no joy. Joy only comes when our investment is driven by a deep love for each other. Now, I know that this kind of love takes time to grow and develop. It's a slow burn thing. But that's what we're called to. See, whether it's the kids in kids' church that we're teaching, or teenagers in the, in the youth group, or other people in your growth group, or the people you just routinely talk to when you gather on Sundays, whether it's to the whole congregation of God's people, if we don't love people, we won't invest properly in them, and there will be a joy deficit all right. See, that's why there's nothing more sad or ultimately more damaging than a loveless ministry. Um, and I don't mean formal ministry, than, than people who just don't love those around them and yet are somehow trying to encourage them in the Lord Jesus. That's why we need to ask God to give us his love for the people that he's put us alongside, whether we chose them or not. People at Salt Church as a whole, you know, people in our growth group. We need to start by loving people with the love that Jesus himself has loved us with. The second thing is, if investing in people can only be driven by love, second thing is, investing in each other is always costly and time-consuming. Just in case you don't know, the hardest thing about church is always people doesn't matter how extroverted or introverted you may be. It doesn't matter how much you like the person or you struggle with them. Investing in people always drains energy and sucks up time. Loving people is really hard. In fact, it's so hard that the only thing that can help us to do this is the cross-shaped love that Jesus has already lavished on us. In the same way that financial investments can fall as well as rise, Investing in people is a long-haul activity with all kinds of painful fluctuations along the way. Sometimes it's more discouraging than encouraging. But this is what Jesus himself calls us to. And this is what Jesus himself does in us. So how are you going with this right now? If you're part of the church family at Salt... Do you see it as your responsibility as the key to your joy to invest in other people? Do you get the fact that showing the love of Christ means investing in other people, come what may, whatever that takes? Now for some of us, now is the point where we actually have to pause and reflect on our lack of love or our self-love and run again to the Lord Jesus for the resources we need to care for, nurture, protect, and give ourselves to other people in church for the long haul. As we remember that that is exactly what the Lord Jesus does for us. His investment in us is immeasurable. John Piper once wrote, We don't believe Jesus when he says there is more blessedness, more joy, more lasting pleasure in helping others than there is in a life devoted to our material comfort. We don't believe Jesus when he says that investing in other people, loving other people, is the road to blessedness, joy, pleasure. 
I think Piper's right. I think we need to repent of that, to recalibrate our thinking. The Lord Jesus calls us not to sell for anything less than investing in each other to a deep love that has legs. And that leads us to step three. Uh, so step one is pursue integrity. Step two is invest in each other. Step three is say what needs to be said. Because Paul's committed to serving Christ with integrity, integrity and determined to invest in people, including men like Titus and churches like that at Corinth, it's hardly a surprise then that he's willing to say what needs to be said, even if it's deeply unpopular. And he, but he does it because he knows this kind of loving honesty is a further step to sharing in real joy. Look back with me to 7 verse 8 where Paul again talks about a thing called the difficult letter he'd written them. He's mentioned this several times, but this time Paul's actually heard from Titus how they responded to this difficult letter that we don't have, that probably comes in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He says this, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. No, well, I, I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. You see, he sounds a bit conflicted, but the message is clear. He didn't want to hurt them, but he knew that it was better for them if he spoke the truth, painful though it was. A guy from the 4th century, John Chrysostom, wrote, Like a father who watches his son being operated on, Paul rejoices not for the pain being inflicted, but for the cure, which is the ultimate result. Paul says, yeah, I kind of do regret writing the letter, but I know I needed to write it. I knew I needed to hurt you because that was the only way that healing would come. So Paul said what he had to and the result was repentance and joy. Verse 9, yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So are you ready to put a hard word when necessary? Do you care enough to say what needs to be said to bring people back to their senses and ultimately to cause them to run back to God. Are you ready to gently and lovingly call sin, sin for the good of your brother and sister? Are you willing to open yourself up to other people doing that for us? You see, in this painful letter that Paul wrote, he tackled a really difficult and messy moral issue in the church. Why did he do it? because he cared deeply for them. He didn't want to see a, a wedge driven down the center of the church. He didn't want to see the work of the gospel set back in their lives. So, verse 12, so even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By this, we're all encouraged. He said, look, I actually did this for the greater good for the health of the church as well as for your health. And the takeaway for us, be prepared to say the hard thing, to say what needs to be said. I should add a couple of caveats. First, do remember that you might be completely wrong, and so speak humbly. And second, don't expect people to thank you for your honesty, because they almost certainly won't, at least not straight away. It may actually impair your long-term relationship with the person, but it will be good for them. It may be that you saying the hard thing to them means that they withdraw from you. But if they're pressing on with Jesus, 
then it's worth the pain. That's what love will do. See, when we think about this, we do need to remember we are people who instinctively blame others for our problems. That's got a long and embarrassing history, stretching all the way back to Adam's conversation in Eden with God after he'd sinned because of the woman you put there. But there are also specific factors which I think makes our generation particularly good at blaming other people. I came across an old song on YouTube this week. It's called The Psychiatrist Folk Song by an English woman called Anna Russell. Uh, you, can, you can Google it if you want, uh, but, but here's what she says. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eye. He led me on a downy couch to see what he could find and here's what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mummy hid my dolly in a trunk and so it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day and that is why I suffer from kleptomania. I know it doesn't rhyme, stick with me. At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence towards my brothers, and so it follows naturally, I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy now, I have learned this lesson, this is taught, everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. We need to remember that straight talking, especially when it comes to our sinfulness, is rarely appreciated, not least because we are wired to blame someone else. But it's the third step to authenticity in church. So let's set ourselves to speak honestly and lovingly, and let's set ourselves to receive the hard word humbly. And that only leaves one more thing. Step four is seek joy through repentance. For the simple reason that Paul gives us that godly grief leads to real repentance, which in turn leads to enjoying the freedom of our salvation in Christ. Real repentance leads to joy in church. Come with me to the verses at the heart of this section that we've left untouched until now. Verse 9, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. They felt the sting in Paul's words. They repented. They changed. That brought joy all round. Just look again at the stunning statement in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings salvation, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance, properly understood, is the place we start the Christian life. It's a place for us to stay and it's the way for us to continue. One writer wrote, only repentance is brute honest enough and joyous enough to bring us all the way home. But how repentance could be either joyous to us or vibrantly true is a foreign idea to most of us. That's pretty accurate. Repentance isn't an attractive thing for us. It's not, it doesn't come easily to us. In fact, we're not often entirely sure what it is. But Paul says it's the one thing that will bring us restoration. Now, the key here is in the distinction that Paul makes between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings, leads to repentance and joy. Worldly sorrow leads to death. 
What's he talking about? How can we tell the difference between these kinds of sorrow? Well, when life falls apart, especially when we come face to face with our sin, we have a variety of options. We can choose option A, crisis, sorrow or repentance. It's the kind of thing that people experience when the engines fail on the plane and they start making promises to God, uh, whom up to five seconds before they refuse to believe in. It's a kind of crisis thing. Then option B is a, is a ritual thing, ritual repentance, where we try to be, deal with our feelings of guilt by going to church at Christmas or lighting a candle or giving some money to the rural fire service. Then, then we have option C, which you could call manipulative sorrow, manipulative repentance, which is to put on such a performance of despair, crying woe is me as loud and as often as necessary to try to get some sympathy from those around us even if they happen to be those that we've hurt, thus causing the guilt in the first place. Now, if we manage to pull that off to get the focus off what we've done on to get people feeling sorry for us, then we feel better and no further action is necessary. See, those are all forms of worldly grief, which, according to Paul, leads to death. Panicky promises doesn't work trying to find some ritual, some practice to make ourselves feel better, trying to kind of run it off, that doesn't work. Then trying to manipulate the source of our pain, our guilt away, well, they all lead to death. So what kind of repentance are we looking for then? What, what is this repentance that leads to joy, this, this godly sorrow that brings repentance? Well, I think the best definition that's ever been written um, was written in the 17th century in a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, stick with me here. This language is a bit archaic, but, but this takes us right to the heart of what Paul's talking about. Uh, it says, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. It's a gift from God. So it's actually God who helps us to, to repent like this. But here's what it looks like. By it, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. So repentance starts with realizing that our sin is filthy, that it's wrong, that we've actually faced the fact that this, that God hates this sin and it's damaging and we have made wrong choices. So repentance starts with that acknowledgement. But also we go straight with that to the Lord Jesus. The definition continues. And upon his apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for, hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God. Okay, so repentance is to realize, oh, this sin is horrible. But it's okay because God has paid for this in Jesus. So we run to Jesus knowing that he's waiting with his arms wide open. We ask for Jesus' help to hate the sin and turn from it. And then the last bit is purposing and endeavoring to walk with Jesus in all the ways of his commandments. See, godly sorrow helps us to hate sin to realize that Jesus has actually paid for this, to run to Jesus and to throw ourselves on him to press forward, knowing that we've been forgiven, knowing that we have the strength to, to press on with him, 
knowing that he is working to make us more like him. See, that's where the joy comes from. It's not hopelessness. Jim Packer uh, sums it up for, uh, like this. He says, godly sorrow is five steps. Discern the sin, desire forgiveness, decide to ask for help, deal with God, knowing that we're forgiven in Christ, demonstrate change. You see, when real repentance happens, we know the tears are real, the words are humble, the determination is obvious, the change is obvious, and the joy is tangible. That even through the tears of having faced our own sin and knowing that Christ has died to forgive us, we are brought to our feet again and set out to live for Jesus with a fresh sense of our own brokenness and his strength. See, this is what flows from godly grief. This is when God has done something to us and in us in the Lord Jesus. This is godly sorrow that brings repentance. This is repentance to life. It leads to tears of relief and the sense of joy that repeatedly flows to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I hope you get this because I think this is one of the most distinctive things about the Church of the Lord Jesus. Your church family at Salt, mine here in Brisbane, should be a community where we're so committed to being real and honest, so invested in each other that we're willing to say the hard word when necessary and where we're committed when we're exposed to showing godly sorrow that brings repentance. See, that's why your church family and mine should be spaces where Yes, we're taught and we sing and we pray, but there should be places where we weep and ask forgiveness and gladly hold out forgiveness as deeply broken people who are gradually being mended by Christ so that we can share in his joy together. You see, this passage sets the bar really high. We're called to relationships that are rich and thick, that are painful and exposing, that are confronting and challenging, that are are demanding and thrilling because they're deeply loving and deeply real and where we walk together in the, the sadness and the brokenness of our sin and the joy of repentance together. This is what we should pursue for ourselves and long for and others Because from this kind of repentance, from this kind of grief, according to God, flows real change and lasting joy. So the challenge and encouragement of this passage is not complicated. The way of joy is to pursue integrity, give ourselves to people, say what needs to be said, speaking gospel truth into their lives, and looking for, longing for them to do the same, that together we might live out of this repentance which leads to joy and transformation through the gospel as God does his work both in and through us. So let me leave you with one last question. What's missing for you? Integrity? Love? The courage to speak? Repentance that leads to life and joy? The great news is that whatever we're lacking, the answer, the strength we need, the resources, the forgiveness, the willpower, the delight, all of it, is already ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who both embodies and provides the real deal when it comes to joy. The one who gives us, has given us, the happiness of God himself. See, our God in the Lord Jesus Christ has already already made it possible for men and women like us to, to find true and lasting joy through the gospel. The announcement that Jesus died and rose again 
and so has freed us up to point each other to that joy in the strength that he alone supplies. This chapter calls us to be the real deal, but actually reminds us that in Christ we already are. So in his strength, through tears and joy, let's live as the people of God that people might see the beauty and the glory of our God through our words and our life as his people. Amen.